This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, May 9th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The Ninth Amendment of the U.S. Bill of Rights doesn't get much respect, even though it's clearly there for a reason, to protect rights that would be effectively impossible to enumerate. Many states have their own so-called baby Ninth Amendments. Anthony Sanders is author of the new book, Baby Ninth Amendments, How Americans Embraced Unenumerated Rights and Why It Matters. We spoke last week. You spent a lot of time talking about baby Ninth Amendments. Uh, These are amendments that exist within state constitutions in many states. But before we get to that, I feel like there's some prologue we have to get into, which is the Ninth Amendment itself in uh, the Bill of Rights. What does it protect, Anthony? Well, that's a huge question, Caleb, that uh, I thankfully don't delve into much in the book. But I'll give you my opinion anyways, which is that the Ninth Amendment protects rights beyond just those enumerated in the Constitution. And it says, um, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Now, there's a huge debate as to what this means. The justices over the years on the U.S. Supreme Court have been afraid of it, frankly. And so it's come up from time to time, but not really. There's no authoritative ruling on it. Other than that, we don't think it really does anything. And so that's the language of the the Ninth Amendment. I think, I believe what Randy Barnett has written about uh, the Ninth Amendment, which is that it means what it says. It protects rights beyond just those enumerated. But one message of the book is that even if you think that about the Ninth Amendment and you think other parts of the U.S. Constitution don't protect rights beyond just those enumerated in the Constitution, When you look at state constitutions that have the same language, a lot of the reasons for what the Ninth Amendment means or doesn't mean at the U.S. constitutional level kind of fall away. And instead, we're left with what they actually say, which is that they protect rights beyond just those enumerated in the rest of your state constitution. And they show that unenumerated rights, far from being some exception to American constitutionalism, they're actually part of the tapestry of our state constitutions more generally, and they're actually popular. I have heard that if we were to list all of the rights that uh, we should enjoy, even in the founding era, that it would be, you know, impossibly long, that even, even with a voluminous list, there would be things left out, that uh, the government's power to regulate our Uh, lives would still be uh, massive. And just by virtue of uh, listing these things, the implication, uh, if the Ninth Amendment were replaced by this voluminous list, the implication is that it would be that the government could regulate our lives in any way it saw fit, so long as it didn't trounce upon these enumerated rights. Exactly. That's the the fundamental um, fact behind how we Americans have written our constitutions and listed rights, is that if you think about it, there literally are an infinite number of rights. So there's an infinite number of things you could put in a constitution. There's my right to free speech, my right to practice my religion, right? We all know about those. Those are in the U.S. Constitution, most state constitutions. 
then you think about it, uh, my right to play basketball, right? That is not a right in any constitution I've ever heard of. But if the government plays, passed a law saying no playing of basketball, I mean, I think a lot of people would be like, wait a minute, that, that violates my rights. And so people from the from early from founding period and and after have said look you can't list every single right because yeah you'd have a phone book or longer if you're going to do all that so isn't there a way that we can protect rights beyond just those that we're going to list and so when americans come together to uh, write a constitution. This this was true with the Bill of Rights itself, which of course were just amendments to the constitution, but also when state constitutions are made and state constitutional conventions, they'll they'll have a Bill of Rights that they draft up that will be kind of the, the shining jewel of their state constitution. And they'll put in rights that they think are important, speech, religion, search and seizure, cruel and usual punishment ban, all that good stuff. But then they'll say, you know, we can't list everything. So how do we list, how do we protect more than that? Because you're, we're going to leave, leave some of our freedom on the table, so to speak. And early in our history, what my book documents is that they came up with kind of a workaround for this. And that's the, essentially at the end of a bill of rights to say, et cetera, et cetera. There's more than just these. They're also important. We're just not going to put them all on here. And they did that by the language of the Ninth Amendment, which was kind of already on the shelf for them to stick into their state constitution. And this took a long time, but eventually uh, two thirds of all states did that in their own state constitution. You uh, list uh, using a character named Jane, uh, a, a list of rights that she might have exercised on on one some given day just by virtue of her uh, existence, uh, the right to arise at the hour you wish, the right to eat what you think is best for you, the right to wear the clothes of your choice, the right to educate your child in the school of your choice, the right to earn a living, the right to collect stamps, the right to renovate your own home with your own hands, the right to have a dog, the right to play poker, the right to gather with friends after hours, the right to meditate on your own terms without permission. And of course, that's just, that's a tiny list of things. Yeah, that's that, just a few things that, that somebody you do could in the do of in a day. day. Yeah. So at the state level, we understand that the, the U.S. Supreme Court hasn't and maybe doesn't want to or doesn't feel confident in trying to grapple with rights that are, are protected but not uh, listed explicitly. But at the state level, how do these baby Ninth Amendments function? Have states grappled more directly with these uh Amendments and and I, I suppose it's important to note how are they worded differently to the extent that they are worded differently. Yeah, well let let's take the your last question first, and then we'll we'll get broadly with what judges have said about these provisions. Um, they're all worded very similarly to each other to what the Ninth Amendment says. Some will use the word say impair instead of deny. Um, some will have uh, a couple extra words in there about what kinds of rights we're talking about. But the, the most important thing I think to remember for all of these baby ninths is that they all use the word retained, others retained by the people. So we're talking about rights. Uh, and what that implies is that we come together as a, kind of a, a state of nature idea. We come together, we form a government. 
we have rights that we're giving up to the government. And that could be, you know, the right to, to punish people. We give that up to the government. So the government has their police system and all that. But we retain others. And it's those retained rights that these provisions um, protect. Um, now, how they've been protected in courts is unfortunately not very well. Um, but there are some bright spots. So to get an understanding of you know, what I think should be happening with these baby Ninth Amendments um, in court and unenumerated rights more generally, um, we can look at some of those bright spots. So when Americans write their constitutions, when delegates go to the constitutional convention and they hash it out and, and then they, they get a constitution that then usually it goes to the people in the state and it's adopted and you go forward with your new constitution, um, they are very, I think, enthusiastic about protecting rights. Um, now, you know, any arm of government is going to have its drawbacks, as Cato listeners know. And so I'm not saying Americans are perfect when they write constitutions, but there's often a lot of, a lot to be said for how we put our constitutions uh, together in constitutional conventions. But then later, right, you you most you rely on legislators to respect the constitution when they're they're voting on laws. <laughs> yeah, that works out really well. And then it really it falls to judges to protect the, the them. That's why we have judicial review. So when judges have protected unenumerated rights under state constitutions, it's a lot of the same story as what's happened at the federal level with the US Supreme Court. Some rights have been protected at times but often they have kowtowed to what the state or local governments um, want to do. But there, there are some uh, exceptional uh, stories that I tell in the book to kind of show, well, this is how things could be. This is how judges could um, take seriously the fact that we have rights beyond just those enumerated in the Constitution and that they need to be protected and that they need to balance that with, of course, what the the citizenry also want, which is a government that does some things. Um, one story, for example, is uh, everyone knows today about the, the crisis of housing and how we don't have enough housing, especially in certain areas. We don't build enough. Um, and a lot of that is because of things like zoning laws that say, make it illegal for me to rent out my basement to somebody to provide them housing because, ah, uh, you're a single family neighborhood. You, you can't have an additional unit on your property. And there was a case in uh, Michigan in the 1970s where a couple townships did not let a couple developers um, open for what of a, want of a better word were trailer parks. So you think, ah, oh, we don't want trailer parks in our neighborhood, you know, let all those people in here. Well, actually, trailer parks are often a safe and affordable way for people to get very modest but affordable housing that has running water, electricity, um, and they're going to be able to afford that rather than a single family home or a luxury condo or, or whatever it is. And the Supreme Court in that, and the Michigan Supreme Court in that case, which has one of these baby Ninth Amendments, said, you know, one of the rights that's implied by that language is just the right to provide essential housing to people. And that's what these developers are trying to do. Um, and so town, you can't, you, you have all these reasons that are smoke screens for not allowing this development. And so we're going to allow that to go forward to protect this right that is retained by the people. So that word retained, 
it's it's almost as if, as you mentioned, all of us sort of coming together and deciding via sort of grand bargain. There are we recognize that there are rights that you have. Right. But we don't need to go into it right now. Yeah. And, and we really we we could never go into all of the rights that that we have, all the rights that my character Jane has in, in her daily life, the, the ones that that you listed out. Um, now, there, you know, and part of that is resting on this whole theory of the right, the state of nature. And that government is where people are in the state of nature and then they come together and then they form a government and they have this bargain. And, you know, a lot of people today say, like, you know, that never actually happened, right? Like there, there was no state of nature. There was no social contract. It's all just a construct. And you know what? The answer I give is, yeah, I realize that. I realize that uh, you can kind of call it a bargain in the constitutional convention, but as a literal device, state of nature, the stuff that John Locke and other, you know, philosophers from hundreds of years ago would talk about. Yeah, I get that is that didn't happen. But you know what? It's a legal fiction that American constitutional writers since the founding and through today rely upon. Our constitutions are written with kind of a state of nature bargain in mind. If you if you pick up just about any state constitution, wherever you live uh, in, in the country, and you read the preamble, you read the Bill of Rights, it assumes that we have these kinds of rights and we bargain them um, away, but we keep others when we set up our government. And that's just because it's a useful way to think about American liberty is that we retain a lot of rights, we give up some, um, and then we expect them to, to be protected. So Americans, and you know, this is 100% true in any state you look at, and the federal constitution, Americans are Lockeans, they're not Hobbesians. Right? Some of you maybe remember from undergrad philosophy that Thomas Hobbes had this idea that uh, English philosopher that you give up absolutely everything to this guy called the Leviathan who then you know takes care of everyone but you give up all of your freedom and, and trust it in him um you could have had a state that puts together a bill of rights and a constitution and said we're going with Thomas Hobbes and we're giving up everything and so if it's not explicitly in there you know you can do whatever you want government we're not like that we go the Lockean approach and so um, when you when you interpret a U.S. constitution, whether it is the U.S. constitution or a state constitution, you have to keep that limited government um, philosophy in mind. It's very explicit in the in these baby Ninth Amendments, but you need to keep it in mind with other parts of the Constitution too. Is that the um, there's an error on the side of liberty, and that's just part of how you interpret them. So it, it, at, at the state level, and, and that's largely what you've uh, focused on here, at the state level, state constitutions, uh, to the extent that judges, state judges, uh, look to the state constitution first uh, and secure some right that uh, and, and do so that where everyone agrees that, yes, this this right clearly exists. Now we're actually talking about it in a, in a way that we haven't talked about it before. How does that impact 
the federal government? How does that impact the federal judiciary when it comes to securing rights at the state level? Yeah. Well, that, so two answers to your question. On a technical sense, and this is probably something that a lot of you know listeners who aren't lawyers um, often uh, often don't know about because it's not really discussed in, in our discourse that much, is that a so a state or uh, state or local law, whether it's a statute, um, whether it's the state constitution itself, only applies to the state or local government. So the federal government can then, it doesn't affect what the federal government do uh, does. Um, so you can't ha- say you have a state constitutional amendment as uh, maybe South Carolina tried to do a couple hundred years ago, they're in succession crisis of, you know, w- the, the federal government can't do this or this in our state. Um, that's just not how, because the federal constitution is the supreme law of the land. But, you know, I will say to listeners who think, well, th- that doesn't sound right. Most governing in the United States is done at the state or local level. Federal government's big, way too big. I agree with everyone about that. And it does all kinds of stuff that we don't agree with. But what where the rubber really hits the road, it's your state or local government. And so for, for one, my message in the book about what these provisions can actually do in attacking governmental overreach at the state or local level, that's a big deal. But secondly... And this this comes out in the, the near the end of my book um, in the in the last chapter. Which, uh, by the way, if anyone's uh, listening, by the time it comes out, it will be available for free. The ebook will be available for free, so you, there's no excuse if you want to read along with me here. What a um, deal! The uh, I think so. Um, I like free. So that the last chapter goes into what are the implications when we think about unenumerated rights being in a lot of constitutions. So you hear about unenumerated rights uh, uh, a lot, and and you hear this from the Supreme Court last year uh, with the Dobbs opinion, right versus Roe versus Wade. And that the message there from both the majority and the dissent, by the way, in that case, is that unenumerated rights are pretty rare. There's a few we want to protect, they're kind of arguing over the one, like whether, say, in that case, the abortion is one of them or whatever. But um, there's a few we want to protect, but not too many because, you know, that that's not really what uh, our Constitution is all about. We need to defer to the government that have large amounts of power. And so the, the dissenters say in the Dobbs case, they say, well, you, 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 we wouldn't want to go back to the days of where we protect the right to contract as an unenumerated right. Right. Well. The message of my book is that actually when Americans write their constitutions, they like protecting unenumerated rights. It's actually normal to protect unenumerated rights. Dare I say, again, it's popular. So if if at the when we're talking about state constitutions, of which Americans have written a state constitution uh, 200 times, a lot of states have done it multiple times and a few have only done it once. But if you add them all up, they've actually done this 200 times. Um, when they do that and they're into protecting unenumerated rights, then when we look at the U.S. Constitution itself, whether it's the U.S. Constitution hashed out in 1787 or the Bill of Rights just after that, or the Reconstruction Amendments after the Civil War, they're the same Americans who at various times were writing state constitutions. And so we should be open-minded that they were into protecting 
unenumerated rights at the federal level as well. And, you know, it, it will depend on what language you're talking about, whether it's the Ninth Amendment or a due process clause or the privileges or immunities clause. Another thing uh, we could rail about this, what the Supreme Court's done to uh, in the 14th Amendment. But what, whatever your interpretation of that language is, you could take a step back and think, these people in other contexts were into protecting unenumerated rights, rights broadly, personal and economic rights. Maybe the same would be true for uh, when they were writing the U.S. Constitution as well. Tell me if you think this is this is wrongheaded, but it seems to me the inclusion of baby Ninth Amendments, as you, it's a great term, and I, I really like it. The inclusion of those in state constitutions gives the federal judiciary a stronger incentive to. Uh, put the liberty interest forward in a much stronger way than they might otherwise. Yes, I think that is true. So just learning about the history of these provisions, what they were supposed to do, how people have talked about them, whether when they were drafted or interpreted over the years, shows us that uh, our culture is very open to protecting rights beyond just those that are written in a, in a constitution, protecting rights generally, whether they're, I mean, a lot of enumerated rights themselves get pretty shafted. So wh whether you're talking about enumerated or unenumerated rights, we're very, we should be open to protecting them. Um, and so federal judges should, should do the same thing when they're interpreting the U.S. Constitution. I should say, you know, a lot of people would, would, ask, well, what do you really mean by protecting them? Um, do you mean that, that you know, any law that infringes on your personal liberty in any way is unconstitutional because of these um, provisions that, that you talk about in the book? That's not what I'm arguing. What I'm, what I'm arguing is that when you have a right that is protected by your constitution that comes up in court, judges should seriously pay attention to it. That's really not that much to ask, but uh, it it turns out when you when you practice this kind of stuff, as I have at, at IJ over the years, um, that a lot of judges think judges think that is a lot to ask, even though in their other cases, um, there it's it's something that they're they're used to, right? But between pi private parties, uh, that say there's a lawsuit, you look at evidence, you weigh bet between the two, you look at different interests. It's not too much to ask that they. Um, when you are are litigating against the government, that they look at facts and evidence, that they they weigh that, and that they come to a conclusion about whether the government actually has uh, the uh, a public spirited purpose, whether its law that it's trying to defend is um, actually doing what it says it's supposed to do, and then comes to a conclusion about whether your right is violated or not. So that doesn't mean that, as lawyers like to say, that we're asking for strict scrutiny, strict scrutiny in protecting all rights. But it also doesn't mean that we're asking for um, what often happens, and that's a rubber stamp for the government um, when a right is involved. Anthony Sanders is author of the new book, Baby Ninth Amendments, How Americans Embraced Unenumerated Rights and Why It Matters. We spoke last week. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 